This week on The Futurist, Jeffrey Cole. We'd sit down at the internet not knowing where we were going. So, I mean, that's the real sign of success, Mm -hmm. I think, when it becomes not session, but becomes soundtrack to your life. Well, hi there, and welcome to The Futurist. I'm Rob Tursick with my co-host, Brett King. Hey, hey. This week, week we've got a great guest, uh, Jeffrey Cole. Jeffrey is the founder and and the director of the Center for the Digital Future at USC's Annenberg School. And he's an expert in media, all things media, and in particular, digital media. And we'll get into the future of media and maybe the future of television, um, which is looking a little bit like it's in doubt. But before we jump into that, uh, let's just go around and do some round of introductions here. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here today. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Brett. Great to be here. So we are, uh, <laughs> you are coming to us from New York in a hotel room. Uh, we are all scattered to the winds, uh, reconvening here virtually uh, to record the show. Hey, Brett, anything on the news radar this week? Well, you know, I did see Tim Cook debating, you know, being skeptical about the metaverse. And, um, you know, I do think the metaverse is a longer term play. I I do think that I, I, you know, I, I think it has huge potential. Um, and as you know, we've talked about the potential for metaverse to distract from inequality combined with universal basic income and things like that. But he made the point that we, you know, like we have our smartphones today, and some of it's wishful thinking, but I think it's, uh, um, you know, it got a basis in fact, is that augmented reality, we're going to wonder how we lived without augmented reality in, in you know, in, in the future. So, the, the, uh, but, but this is very different from VR when we talk about design aspects, because in VR, you're designing immersive you know, virtual world experiences, where in augmented reality, you're augmenting the existing experience. And if you do that elegantly, then it will be something that is, uh, you know, that that we can't live without, right? Yeah, Just like right. our smartphones today. But if that's you do right. it poorly, then, you know, um, you know we've see, all seen those depictions on YouTube and so forth. So I think this is going to be an interesting debate. Obviously, part of this messaging is getting the crowd ready for the eye reality glasses or whatever they, that's in, right. they, they end up calling them. But uh, I think what's interesting about this is, is his confidence in the level of um, disruption AR is going to bring to our lives and, and, you know, how it's going to enhance our lives through this tech. And I've been more a believer in the AR stuff than the VR. And so I, I I'm really yeah. excited to see where the, the Apple product goes in that, but I, that's I all, that's that, all I had this week. No, I show that enthusiasm. You notice uh, in the background here, there's a bit of jockeying between, uh, between Apple and meta. Yes. Uh, and, and uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has, has been very outspoken uh, in criticizing Apple because they're doing their own thing and he's accusing them of trying to build their own metaverse and not being interoperable and, and so forth. Uh, and thereby trying to position, you know, Meta as the friendly metaverse company. Good luck with that. And Meta's uh, working on AR as well, though, which is interesting, well, right? So their approach is everything, right? Project so, Aria, yeah. Yeah, so they treat the metaverse like a garbage can and you can throw every extended reality concept into it. Um, and that that's kind of why it's such a loose and baggy definition. What the heck is a metaverse, right? And Tim Cook being very clear, he's like, that's not a very good, that's not a very well-defined term. We've heard that from other guests on this show as well. 
Uh, and um, it was a term. It. it was a term that surfaced very quickly to give some camouflage to Zuckerberg when yeah. Facebook, you know, all of a sudden, with a, with no warning, they changed their corporate name, their whole direction, to yeah. trying to take the focus off of Facebook. So right, because Facebook's brand has become toxic, and to a lot of people, it's not something they want to be associated with. Yeah. So the metaverse is like. Uh, it's a it's a magic trick. It's like look over here at the metaverse. Don't look at our ugly place where we're making money today. Um, but 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 Apple's more deliberate. Uh, so one of the things you'll notice the last um, the last couple quarters, everyone's been expecting Apple to unveil that new reality headset, and they haven't done so. Uh, it's been teased. It's been rumored, and so forth. A lot of people are looking forward to it. Uh, the rumors are very positive. Uh, but Apple's withheld that. And they've been very quietly advancing other parts of their business. And one thing they haven't done is gotten themselves exposed to all the hoopla and hype. Um, because they understand that there's a significant backlash from Wall Street when you hype something that's not ready for prime time. Uh, the evidence of that, of course, is Meta, where the stock is trading at 50% of where it was a year ago, precisely because they overhyped this concept. So I think Tim Cook is demonstrating that he's got uh, maybe a steadier grip on leadership there uh, and messaging. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what does come forward. With, well, the, with the, the, the other thing is this is going to be the first major product that Apple has launched since, um, you know, except the the AirPods, right? The, and the watch. The, uh, and, and the watch since uh, St Steve left us. Um, but I, I do believe that smart glasses are going to be the next big computing platform. Uh, I think they're cool. going to be a lot more consumer um you know, friendly than than VR in the in initial instance, um, and this could set Apple off on, you know, an entirely new direction. Uh, and and it does change the paradigm in terms of delivery of content and delivery of functionality. We have to move away from the app experiences to now these chunks of embedded utility, you know, in in the field of view, which which is a new paradigm again yeah. in terms of development of businesses and commerce and things like that that we we have to explore. So it's a really interesting stage. Yeah. Right? And that's good because the app stores are slowing down, right? Uh, they're still a booming business and it's not like they're declining, uh, but they don't see that it, they don't experience that rapid growth that they've had for the past 10 years. You know, there's an interesting nuance in what Tim Cook said yesterday, which is um, he pointed out that virtual reality, immersive experiences like virtual reality are session based. He said, it's great for a little while, but you can, you know, you can you really get a lot of benefit out of it. He's a fan. But it's session based. In other words, you're not going to use it all the time. And anyone you know personally who has a VR headset will tell you they use it a couple times a month maximum. Like nobody's using it on a daily basis or all day long, which is kind of the vision that we've heard from the people who are promoting the metaverse. So the distinction here is really you can draw an analogy to uh, dial up Internet, which, which was session based in the 90s. You know, people would sit down at the computer, they'd plug the phone line in funny noises from the modem, and then they'd be online for a little while, and then they'd be offline, right? So that was session-based. Now today with ubiquitous broadband, uh, we're on full-time, like we're always on, we're always connected. Um, I but think I guess that's the, the point, Apple's, isn't it? Like, like, Apple's like, aiming for the always-on experience, yeah, right? Yeah, they're exactly. not interested in the session-based, yeah, yeah. and, and I think they're smart about that. And the uh, VR stuff tends to be, um, I want to watch a movie or be in a movie, you know, or um, you know, play a computer game. It's it's sort of that entertainment space, but yeah. it's not as applicable as AR, which you know you could be living with twenty four seven, right? Television started a session based in the earliest yeah, days of television. We would turn the set on to watch a show. We might be sucked in with a promo to the next, but then we turned it off. 
And then quickly we learned, hey, we like television. And we'd walk in a room and turn it on, not knowing what was on, changing the channel till we found either the thing we wanted to watch, or as Paul Klein at NBC used to say, the least objectionable programming. And the internet started the same way. We'd make a list on a post-it note of the eight things we wanted to do online and then log off and go watch television. And then we figured out we liked the internet as background noise. And we'd sit down at the internet not knowing where we were going. So, I mean, that's the real sign of success, mm-hmm. I think, when it becomes not session, but becomes soundtrack to your life. Like like radio, right? Before yeah. both of those, radio became the wallpaper uh, to your life. Yeah. Well, well, Jeffrey, you've got a great perspective on the future of media. Um, and, and one of the things we were just talking about before the show is this concept of disruption. Uh, you know, that word gets used an awful lot. I, I have a friend who started a suitcase company and he described it as a disruptive suitcase, which to me sounds like an exploding suitcase. And I said, gently, I said, look, um, don't you think you're overusing this term a little bit? He said, no, this is absolutely a disruptive suitcase. And I just sort of shook my head. Um, that Sounds term's like overused. something out of Get Smart. But exactly. Hello, Chief is Max. Yeah, but you sorry. could say there's an argument that that the media industry has been a hundred year history of one successive disruptive wave of innovation after another. Tell us a little bit about that, Jeff. Sure. Well, I love the word disruption, and it does get completely overused. Disruption's not innovation. It's not an improvement. It's a whole new way of doing things that challenges old business models. Companies sometimes can't survive disruption. I mean, we can talk about how companies, when they see disruption coming, double down, bury their heads in the sand, sometimes have their competition made illegal, as in the case of taxi companies with Uber and automobile dealers with the ways Tesla sells its cars. But uh, sometimes disruption can't be fought. You know, for example, digital photography. Kodak, one of the three greatest brand names on planet Earth, almost not a person who couldn't recognize them by their orange and yellow colors, there was no way they could survive digital photography. You know, most of us over the age of 45 have probably spent $50,000 in our lifetime on photography between cameras, film processing, albums. Today, teenagers will take a thousand times more photos than I ever took, and the lifetime expenditure may be $25. So disruption's a whole new way, style of doing things that challenges the whole way the industry operates. It's not an improvement. Dolby Sound is not a disruption of the movie business. Mm -hmm. Um, Putting um, um, IMAX or bringing food to the seat is is an improvement, not a disruption. I'm interested in disruption. The fact that it rarely comes from where we expect it to come from, the disruption of the retail business should have come from Walmart or Target, not some upstart bookseller in Seattle. The disruption of the movie theater business should have come from the studios, not a blockbuster video rental and then Netflix. The disruption of cars 
should have come from Ford or Toyota, not some arrogant South African who challenges the whole system. Incidentally, we need some arrogance for disruption uh, there. Yeah, the point you're making is that the incumbents can't disrupt themselves, right? This is always always their problem. There there are a few examples. Best Buy is an example of a chain store that did disrupt themselves, but rarely can they disrupt themselves. And incidentally, just on Tesla, you know, Musk is a triple disruptor with Tesla, quadruple disruptor if you count PayPal. But but Tesla disrupted the internal combustion engine, disrupted the way cars are sold through dealer networks, and disrupted the advertising model. Mm. You know, Tesla has never spent a more a penny on advertising. They don't need to. All you need to do is have every gas station post prices. But when you buy an average price General Motors car today, about $1,800 of the purchase price goes to advertising. Mm-hmm. Tesla, never a penny. Incidentally, talking about Apple, Apple's been rumored beyond the glasses, been rumored to working on a car, rumored to be working in healthcare. If Apple ever does introduce a car, they'll be in the same position as Tesla. Is there anyone in America who would not go and look at an Apple car, an iCar potentially, just to see what it is? They might not buy it, but is there anybody who wouldn't go look at it? So disruption just turns everything upside down. And you're right, the media business has been disrupted from the very beginning, starting with sound. Mm-hmm. Um, incidentally, da- Damien Chazelle, the, uh, the, the Academy Award-winning director of La La Land and Whiplash, his film this Christmas, Babylon, is the understory, the understory, the behind-the-scenes story of the movie business going from silent films to talking. The only th- things we've ever seen are singing in the rain, where it's played for comedic effect. But there were suicides around the conversion to talking. There were careers that were ruined, businesses that went bankrupt. It's a pretty darn interesting story. Mm, and, interesting. Uh, and that movie is going to get into it. Uh, so television also was a disruptive force in the early days, right? Because you had a very established motion picture business and disrupted radio. It, and talk it, a little about that. Well, certainly, I, I love radio. It disrupted radio absolutely right, Brent. Although we should find a word ten times as strong. Radio before television was was this national medium live, original content, the biggest stars went into radio, and families used to sit down and make appointments to listen to radio, and for reasons I've never understood, watch the radio. Uh, (laughs) Television comes along, all the content sucked out of radio, all the big stars, with a handful of exceptions of people who sounded good but didn't look good, went into television, radio had no economic model. It became a tool of the music business because it could get that content for free uh, without having to produce it. Radio went from national to local and sadly with no original content and became background noise. Where do people listen to the radio? In the car, in the shower. 
Yeah, so I mean, radio we... completely disrupted, and then television disrupted the movie business. Yeah. In, yeah. in, 19, in 1946, in North America, we sold 4.3 billion movie tickets. To keep pace, the population's more than doubled, we'd have to sell about 10 billion movie tickets. Uh, 2019, the last normal year of the movie business, we sold 1.2 billion. So the movie theater business became a shell of what it used to be mm -hmm. uh, because of television. So television was the biggest disruptor. And of course, now the old television business is being completely disrupted. Well, great. You bring that up. Let's get into that, because I think that's a timely topic. You know, from a consumer standpoint today, people feel like, wow, um, I've got abundant choice, maybe too much choice. There's so many different options for streaming. There's more than 200 different streaming services in the U.S., and um, and of course, there's you know still cable television and broadcast TV and so forth. Uh, so we're sort of surrounded by overchoice. Um, but from an economic standpoint, that's not really such a great business model. Can you talk a little bit about the changes that are happening right now in the in the TV yeah. business? Well, first of all, people don't like too much choice. Uh, you know, people don't like Cheesecake Factory menus of 30 pages where it takes too long to process. You can't really get a handle on it. Restaurant owners know people like seven to 10 choices, enough choices to feel you can make a choice. You know, and, and before cable, the average television market, a big city had seven television stations. 90% of viewing was on three, ABC, CBS, and NBC. 30 years later, most markets had well over 100 and 90% of viewing was on seven or eight. So we don't like a lot of choice. But what we're seeing, the real disruption we're seeing, I think, in the television world is we're seeing the original legacy players, the ones who were the forces in radio and controlled television well into the 90s, the broadcast networks, and the three I mentioned, and Fox, their demise has been predicted for two generations, but I think we're on the verge of it. And I think what's real, first of all, the networks see that, which is why uh, ABC has Hulu and Disney Plus. We'll see if they hang on to Hulu. NBC has Peacock. CBS has Paramount Plus. So first, they already see a future where they're moving their programming over there. But what I think finally ends broadcast television in the next three to eight years is the loss of sports. Sports, the only thing we watch on network television live, the only thing that can aggregate a massive audience. In the last couple of years of the top 10 shows of broadcast television, nine have been sports and eight have been NFL football. Well, now there's players competing for those rights. Amazon and Apple are both buying rights. And when they decide they want all those rights, as I said to CBS about three and a half years ago, you know, on NFL contracts, I said, who's going to compete with the richest man in the world at that time, Jeff Bezos? Not you. And when they lose sports and they're just not going to be able to come up with the money that sports can command, nothing's left. That whole thing collapses there. And I think that's when broadcast television makes sense. Well, that, that, that's, I think, you know, an important element because, um, you know, 
if if you think about where TV uh, demonstrated differentiation from traditional streaming was the live aspect, you know, but there's not a lot of live content beyond sports, you know, there's, there's events, but if you look at things like, you know, like the, uh, the SpaceX launch of, of, of the first astronauts back to the International Space Station, as an example, that was streaming. It was a streaming event, you know? Um, yes, it did play on NASA TV and, and things like that. But if you think about it now, what do we need to do live through broadcast? You know, well, news, no. That can be session based, um, and all know, the can, innovation yeah. has moved to Twitch. Exactly. Like there is innovation yeah. for live; yeah, it's not happening on broadcast. Right. Yeah, because it's participatory Twitch, at least. You know, but, but Jeffrey, let me ask you a question. But to build on that, or kind of bridge back to the point that Brett was making, the economics of broadcast are incredibly cheap. You know, once you've built the tower that you can broadcast from, you're using public airwaves. Uh, you don't have to pay for copper cable in the ground or fiber. Uh, you're not having to pay for bandwidth, which is a gigantic expense for streaming services. So doesn't it seem to you that broadcast TV is always going to linger, at least in the background, in some some form, because essentially it's free to air, it's free to broadcast? We, we saw during COVID that public television and local television made significant gains. Cable and stream, everything grew during COVID, but okay. particularly public and local. And to my, a little bit of my surprise, they've held on to those games. So I think there's going to be room for local television in a different way than we've seen it before. But I think what the, you know, the broadcasters, what tele, they've lost, not only will they lose sports, they've lost most of what made them special. They, you know, they owned situation comedies and 60 minute dramas that's almost in most years, the broadcast networks would have one Emmy nominated show and it was Saturday Night Live happened. We happen to be this year. There's a show on ABC that's creating some buzz, Abbott Elementary, which is the first traditional. But most of that, most of the sitcoms and dramas have been lost to streaming. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's not much left on broadcast that they can compete and do well. Okay, now there's a simple framing that we hear a lot, which is uh, traditional TV versus streaming media, right? You hear this constantly. This is kind of like the simplistic way of thinking about it. Oh, everything's going to the internet. But when you appear a little closer, it turns out there's lots of flavors of television. We talked about a few of them, cable TV, broadcast, we could talk about satellite. That's also true on the internet. Uh, Streaming services, there's many different versions of streaming services. Most people are familiar with uh, SVOD, subscription video on demand. That's services like Netflix, Disney Plus, um, HBO Max, and so forth. And the advantage of these services is you subscribe and you can watch anything you want, whenever you want, on whatever device you want. That's a really compelling value proposition particularly for a generation that grew up with smartphones and tablets because they can start watching on one device and migrate to another and seamlessly pick it up. And more importantly, you don't have to do what you do with broadcast TV. You don't have to watch in pattern. You don't have to sit down at a certain time and watch TV, what we used to call appointment TV. And you don't have to like use a DVD or some device to record it. You can just click and play. Now, honestly, after 10 years of that, most people are conditioned to it. So that's definitely a preference. But SVOD is not the only offering right? There's other offerings. There's advertising supported VOD. And now there's these new services called FAST, 
which is, uh, you know, free ad supported subscription television. Yeah, that's right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the distinction of fast? Because that seems to be where the momentum is now. And incidentally, just one quick thing on SVODs, which are the channels most people know, Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max, they're really, you know, they, they were able to attract those subscription fees because they had no interruptions. And I think far more important than no interruptions was no editing of content. You could see the themes and the explicitness that you couldn't see on broadcast television. That changes next year. Now, with the exception of Apple TV Plus, they're all going to have advertising. It, mm. So we know there are going to be interruptions. It remains to be seen if you can run shows like The Wire or Sex Love on Netflix with advertisers supporting it, or will it get homogenized? And, uh, you know, in some ways, you could make the case that in the next two years, the streaming world is going to look an awful lot like cable television. Uh, wow. So everything old is new again. But and, the economics are not as good. So we should no. probably drill into that because there's okay. a big argument that the economics of media are changing and the people that benefit from the companies that benefit from it might not be the old media companies themselves. Before we do that, though, we should do our lightning round. And this is the part of the show where Brett asks you a series of questions and you give us quick answers. All right. Sounds All right. Fun. So Jeff, what was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to on TV or via books? Twilight Zone. Well, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, name a futurist or entrepreneur that has influenced you and why? Uh, Isaac Asimov. I thought his, his work holds up brilliantly. So that probably answers the second, the next question as well, which is what's the best prediction a futurist or sci-fi practitioner or entrepreneur has ever made in your assessment? That's a really interesting question. Um, the, one, the one I always liked, it wasn't a futurist, but it was a theatrical film. I always liked the prediction from Planet of the Apes that we were going to blow ourselves up and be taken over by apes. Very cool. Like that. Yeah. And what science fiction story is most representative of the future you hope for? There was an episode of Black Mirror um, with uh, Ron Howard's daughter, um, Bryce Dallas Howard, where every, every evaluation in our life, every interaction in our life was rated. And all of a sudden, our rating... and from all the interactions in our life determined what jobs we got, where we lived, what kind of lives we had. I think we're heading in that direction. Yeah, yeah. I forget the name cool. of that episode. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, great. Uh, so we are, uh, you're listening to The Futurists and we are talking today to Jeffrey Cole from the Center for Digital Future at USC Annenberg. Hang on tight. We're going to go to a break and we'll be back in just a minute. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. 
You're back with the Futurists. I'm Brett King and uh, joined by Rob Tursek. Our guest this week is Jeffrey Cole. Um, and we're going to dive more into the future of media and uh, so forth. But before that, I wanted to do a quick deep dive. So, um, Rob, you know, one of the, the, the impacts of Hurricane Ian is that it's it's giving us a glimpse, as we talked about um, in the previous show with with Thomas Frey is it's giving us a bit of a glimpse into the future of a climate affected world. And one of the early warning signs that we see is the collapse of the property insurance sector. And so um, to give you some uh, perspective on this, the average property insurance, homeowners insurance now in, in Florida, in hurricane affected areas for hurricane insurance is over $5,000 a year now. Um, and this has resulted in a major issue for insurance. So um, what we have already is seven, seven property insurance companies in Florida are already in liquidation and 12 others are um, in distress. Um, and so this is a major issue in respect to the fallout of climate change, because, um, you know, we talk about the, the impact of the costs of damage, um, you know, the potential uh, impact of, um, you know, Power, the power grid, water quality, supply chain on food and so forth. But the early stress testing of the system is really the insurance industry. Not only are the prices going up in Florida, but it's now affecting affordability of homes because if you can't afford to insure a home, then, you know, how do you go about assessing how much you should spend on a home? So this has some pretty significant implications. Now, there is um, a special session um, that uh, the Florida legislature has uh, is uh, going to look at um, some support for property owners and for home insurance uh, in Florida. But this is a growing uh, concern for Florida residents. But it, it it really, I think, is a bit of that canary in the coal mine. What happens when insurers no longer can afford to insure those assets or property assets in a state like Florida? What's going to be the implications of that? From you know, does the state have to step in? This is this, this is uh, you know, obviously we have a longer term thing to build climate resilience in terms of our building codes, in terms of infrastructure and things like that. But in the short term, what happens when insurers won't insure you anymore because of the risk of climate change? That's something that um, it's going to be I'm interesting powerful. to see play out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a powerful signal. You know, there's a lot of disinformation and many divergent viewpoints on climate change as an issue. Uh, we get this cacophony in our politics here where some people deny it entirely still, despite all yeah. the abundant evidence. But one industry that doesn't mess around, one industry that is fact-based is the insurance industry. They have Absolutely. actuarial tables that, that tell them exactly what they can forecast. And we talk about different methodologies for predicting. The insurance companies are pretty good at forecasting. That's their business, right? They're making a bet and they're making a bet. They're putting real skin in the game when they make that bet. Uh, so if they're telling you now that they can't afford to insure an area, that has implications not just for Florida, but as uh, as the water heats up, as the oceans start to heat up and as currents change, it's going to move northward. And we're going to start to see that weather pattern hit the Carolinas as well and Georgia. Uh, so that whole coastal region, the southeast U.S. and elsewhere in the world is going to be endangered and there may be they may be uh, uninsurable. Yeah, Let's get back problem. into it with Jeffrey. Uh, so, Jeffrey, thank you for listening to our news break. 
Um, we want to resume the conversation. So Jeffrey, here's the thing that's interesting to me. You know, uh, I worked in the media industry for 20 or 30 years and um, worked with some big companies, movie studios, TV companies, and so on. And what I noticed is that there was a change. Uh, the prestige in, in the 80s and 90s was in the motion picture business. Uh, but then gradually in the 90s and 2000s, it shifted to cable television because that's where the money was. And with uh, you know uh, channels like HBO and Showtime, you could also do things that you couldn't do in a movie. You could do longer scenes and more complicated shows um, and maybe better characterization, deeper characterization. And so it was also a medium uh, that attracted a lot of really talented people as well. So there's a shift, a shift from uh, motion pictures towards paid TV, cable television. Um, and with that, uh, the companies that played that well they grew much bigger, right? So they consolidated a lot of cable and that paid for much bigger movie studios, sometimes two movie studios. But now there's a new shift happening. There's a new sheriff in town. There's a new consolidator and that's the big tech companies. Uh, it's not just Apple. We talked about Apple TV. Of course, Amazon is a big player, not just in streaming video with the Prime Video service, but also in live video with Twitch. So Amazon's a bigger player in uh, in in video than people realize. Uh, we see that Walmart wants to get into streaming media and their partnership with NBC and Peacock um, and other companies are you know, exploring the space. Today of the big motion picture companies, uh, most of them are owned by electronics companies, telecoms companies, or uh, uh, Amazon, a retailer effectively. Uh, tell us a little bit about that shift. What's behind that shift? What are the economics that are driving uh, these other kinds of companies? to well, acquire motion picture companies? Well, all of these companies you mentioned who acquired motion picture companies uh, were, were culturally extraordinarily influential, but economically were rather small entities. And you know, five years ago, Rupert Murdoch, the most powerful man in the whole entertainment media business, looked around and realized he couldn't compete anymore. He had become a small player. His competition wasn't Warner and Universal and, uh, and Paramount. It was Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft. And, and to them, most of the, these companies are rounding errors. You know, Tim Cook, I think, got into Apple TV Plus sort of as a lark as an experiment to see, you know, let, maybe we ought to look into it. You know, he, he brings over two of the best television executives from your old company, Sony, says, guys, I don't know if we really want to do this, but let's see. And then he reaches into his pocket as if, as if he's looking for spare change and says, oh, here's $6 billion. So <laughs> this is, the scale has changed. The question is, how much of this is a vision for where they fit in? How much helps the existing business, as, as um, Amazon thinks their streaming service does for Prime? And how much is ego? You know, and the, the entertainment business has always attracted real estate moguls, oil wildcatters who like going to the Oscars and standing next to movie stars. And Jeff Bezos goes to the Oscars and the premieres and Tim Cook shows up. He doesn't look like he's having as good a time as Bezos, but they've changed the whole equation. The, uh, you know, one, one, one example, just one, you know, when, when AT&T bought Time Warner, they spent 40% of their market cap buying Time Warner. 
if Apple were to spend 40% of its market cap, they could buy Netflix and Disney, forget the regulatory issues, and have $80 billion left over. So they've just goodbye, changed. Goodbye, they've, Warner changed Brothers. <laughs> they've changed the whole scale. And the question is, who yeah. do these guys want to be? And I think the answer is anything they want to be. Okay, I hear you on that. But I'm curious about this. Uh, what's the economic upside? You know, so I get it. There's an ego play. There's probably there's a lot of truth to that, right? It's fun to walk on the red carpet with a fashion, with fashionable model on your arm. I get that. Yeah. Um, so sure, there's the, the, the lure of ego. Um, but these companies are also economically driven, right? And they're global powerhouses. And clearly they see that adding video and rich media to their portfolio is somehow going to enhance their business. I think it's about engagement, right? It's like engaging users across different aspects of the platform. I don't know, Jeffrey. What, Jeffrey no, no I would agree with that. But the, no, they really do make a business case. Uh, I mean, I think uh, Amazon bringing spending a billion dollars on Twitch and a billion is a rounding error to Amazon, yeah. gave them really access to an audience they couldn't get any other way, a massive audience in the esports world. I think they see streaming doing that for them. I mean, I think they see this as complements to their business. Um, most of them haven't gone in in a very big way yet. I mean, it, you know, and, and certainly to the degree that Netflix went in with $20 billion at their peak, but I think they see it as a real complementary uh, asset to their business. So, okay, there's been a wave of consolidation um, in the last four years, right? So I guess I would describe it like this. Since Netflix started streaming around 2007, uh, at first mm -hmm. they were dismissed and denied and people said it wasn't going to be important. I remember very clearly Jeffrey Bukas, who was running HBO at the time, or running Time Warner at the time, he laughed them off as the Albanian army and so forth. You may remember those days. I do. Um, we, but, there are a lot of those great quotes, but... But by the mid-2010s, the story started to change because at that point, we saw that cable TV had stopped growing, broadcast TV numbers were going down, and meanwhile, streaming numbers were going up relatively quickly. Um, and as uh, as uh, Netflix approached the 100 million user mark and started to introduce new countries, the media companies kind of woke up and realized, wow, we've got to change our game. So you pointed out that a number of the big broadcast companies have now launched their own competing streaming services. But that's not all. They've also started uh, came a game of musical chairs where they've been doing mergers and acquisitions. Uh, Disney, very famously under Bob Iger, assembled an incredible portfolio of brands with Star Wars, with the Marvel franchise, and then most recently by buying Fox uh, outright from Rupert Murdoch, who, as you pointed out, he... he he cashed in his chips. He left the table. He's like, I can't compete at this level. Uh, we also saw AT&T acquire Time Warner, a legendary studio, one of the gems of the media business. I don't think they managed that transition very well. And just three years later, they spun it back out into kind of a shotgun wedding with Discovery Communications, where it lingers today, but burdened with tens of billions of dollars of debt. Amazon swooped in and bought MGM at a grossly inflated price of about $8 billion. Uh, general, you know, the view from the street was it should have been more than four or $5 billion in value. Uh, but anyway, they bought that in order to acquire that huge library and some motion picture production capacity. So what we've seen now is that uh, there's been a wave of mergers and acquisitions. Who's next? Who do you think is next to get acquired? Netflix stock has plummeted since the beginning of the year. They're now trading at about a quarter of where they were a year ago. Do you think Netflix is up for grabs? How Absolutely. about AOL? 
Absolutely. I think uh, Netflix and you may see Microsoft get interested, although so far Sadia Nadella has said he's not interested in media. You know, we had eight studios in the 30s. We have five. There's talk that Comcast may make a play for uh, Warner Media or Warner Media Discovery. That would take us down to four. Um, I think uh, we know you mentioned earlier that uh, Walmart has been interested in streaming and almost pulled the trigger on starting its own streamer. Now it's affiliated with Paramount Plus. They may, I think Paramount is a really good acquisition target for somebody like Walmart. Uh, and then there's the question of Google, and you know, they have YouTube, which they grew organically, but not. Do they want to make a move? I mean, yeah. what, I don't think you know. I, I I don't think you're going to see. I think that what five years ago people were talking about Tencent and Alibaba moving into American media the way yeah. Sony did to Columbia yeah. and and yeah. did with Universal. I don't think you're going to see the Chinese. I think it's going to be purely an American play. But yeah, I think absolutely Netflix, particularly at the reduced value, Disney could be an easy acquisition target. Yeah. You know, Apple's been you know, eyeing Disney for years. They've never done anything about it to this point. So yeah, I don't think there's anybody that's too big to be acquired among the existing media players. Okay, now we're talking about kind of Game of Thrones uh, on the media landscape, you know, who's going to buy whom. But all the companies we're talking about are legacy brands from the past. Um, I've got the same question. Like, what, what's got, what's the op- what's the opportunity for someone new to come in and blow this? Well, apart? I think we're seeing it. I think we're seeing it a lot of times. Brad, on the show, we talk about demographics and how demographics is one of the iron laws of the future. It's going to determine the future by and large. If you had anybody from, uh, if you talked to anybody under the age of thirty. They don't care about MGM. They're not interested in the machinations of Time Warner or Discovery. Um, what they care about is TikTok and YouTube. Overwhelmingly, YouTube is their number one source for video. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of growth, TikTok is the fastest growing, not just in terms of users, but also in terms of advertising revenue. So Jeffrey, talk to us about that disruption from new companies that candidly don't have a stake in the old model. And therefore, they're primed to disrupt the old model. You're absolutely right about the legacy means nothing. To, and and even, even those who knew the legacy couldn't tell you in the last 50 years what's the difference between a Paramount movie and a Warner Brothers movie. It's just a legacy sort of of quality or big budget. Um, I think what TikTok has done is pretty darn extraordinary, so much that it uh, really, you know, it, I think one of the great interesting stories of the pandemic was what Jeffrey Katzenberg tried to do with Quibi. And of course, he gets a pass on Quibi because he was creating a video service for people on the go, and he released it at a time when they weren't going anywhere. But even had there been no pandemic, Quibi wouldn't have survived because he was trying to get six bucks a month out of a teenage audience who yeah. really believes everything's free and and would prefer the less glossy look of TikTok. So I think there's lots of room for new players on a different scale. The one area that they can't compete, but that's the area that's not working so well anyway, is on spending $20 billion on Hollywood type production. 
And this is the year that we figured out that streaming is not gonna cure cancer and end world hunger. And there can't be, you know, I think one of the biggest winners in COVID were the movie theaters who could have disappeared. We've never seen an industry totally disrupted to where it was closed for a year. The studios got to do all the experimentation that the theater owners never wanted on short windows, day and date, adding uh, content onto streamers. None of it worked very well. And the theaters, I think, came out of COVID stronger than almost anybody else. They still, still have a large chunk of the audience who hasn't gone back. Quality of film in the theaters isn't so good because much, not much was greenlit at a high level. But uh, I think uh, you got some old players and some new players that are really sort of interesting. But this is the year we found out you can't have a billion dollar movie without a movie theater. This is the year we found out that streaming doesn't run an entire company. It actually complements theatrical rather than replaces it. So I, I share your view and disruption, as we've talked about from the beginning, comes from unexpected directions. Okay. Now, one of the things we love to do in this show is open it up for some speculative talk. Uh, let's, let's, let's hear your vision for the future way out in the future. Uh, Brett's asking me if we can ask about TV in 100 years. It's interesting you're bringing up the cinema, which is itself about 125 years old. Uh, and, and you're talking about a revival of cinema, which I frankly wasn't expecting you to say today. Um, do you think the cinema is going to be around in 100 years? Are we still going to be going to movie theaters and getting babysitters and you know parking cars and stuff? I'm not, I, well, we, I certainly think that they've lost the mid part of their audience to streaming, but big films, absolutely, I think they'll be around for a hundred years. I think if they ever were going to disappear, 2020 was the year. They were Several of them were on the verge of bankruptcy. The second biggest one is declared bankruptcy, Regal. They had no audiences. People got to stream as much as they wanted, had to rely. If ever there was a time they were going to not make it back, that was then. What you know, okay. the guy, the guy who really okay, deserves. But but, but we're going to have compete. We're going to have a ton of competing mechanisms. You're going to have fully immersive storytelling in a virtual world where you can be a part of the story. You know, you'll be ha able to have these movies that the classic movies brought back, and you'll be able to be sitting in the restaurant in Casablanca watching this play out and so forth. You know, like the ability for us to change storytelling with technologies. Now, interestingly, in Star Trek, they depict this with the holodeck, right? So the holodeck is where you can have these interactive stories. And we can imagine... It's a place, it's a place right. you go to, like a cinema, right? Right. We can imagine that sort of technology now. But uh, interestingly they still occasionally have movie night on Star Trek as sort of a, a quaint, uh, you know, look back to uh, to that medium. But having said that, the dominant experience in that world is, is the... Uh, um, is sort of this immersive um, uh, storytelling stuff. And so I think I, I think um, if you look at how to make movies interactive... 
um, or responsive to an individual audience, it, you come down to an audience of one, right? Because the more interactive you make storytelling, um, and you, you know, we've seen experimentation with choose your own uh, outcomes for movies on Netflix and things like that. But if I truly it, tailor it to you and your perspective, yeah. it's not really a crowd-based experience anymore. Yeah, you're so right. That's, it doesn't work for that's the crowd. That's the challenge. No. That's the challenge that I see that movies yeah. have in the future. Yeah, nobody I, wants the guy I, next to him in the theater to pick the ending of the movie. No one wants that. Except we try that. It doesn't work. Well, that's uh, what I was going to say. I, I, I'm a traditionalist. You know, I think you're talking about from the 80s Clue, where, which had several different endings to the movies, or interactive DVDs where you come to a fork in the road and you get to choose. And what we found is people like stories told to them. Uh, mm -hmm. There is a place for 3D. There is a place for, I don't know what it is yet. There is a place for immersive, but I think people like sitting back and seeing the story unfold in front of them. There is well, we like something both. community we like based, right? right? Yeah, but we like both. Look, you know, there, this breaks down to kind of an age old discussion, which is uh, the difference between experience and storytelling. People love experience. It's hardwired into us as human beings. Experience is, you know, a bunch of cavemen with spears chasing after a wild animal, a wild boar, and they bring it down and they have an incredibly exciting time doing that. Storytelling is when they're back sitting around the fire eating the boar and the guy with the gift of gab or the gal with the gift of gab starts to recount the events in a way that structures meaning into otherwise random series of events that led to that incident. So we like both, right? Humans are hardwired for both. And we create entertainment experiences that support both. You know, certainly for experience, you can think theme park. You could also think virtual reality. Today, the dominant form and the fastest growing form of media is actually games. And games is growing super fast. And I would argue games take center stage when it comes to Ga experience. Games make as much money as the big Hollywood blockbusters now. Actually, a lot more. more but yeah. Bigger. bigger. Yeah. yeah. And and mobile games is bigger than motion oh, yeah. pictures. It's yeah, yeah. crazy how big it is. But remember, these are multiplayer experiences, right? And uh, we've had plenty of folks come on the show before to talk about the metaverse, how it's going to grow out of the game worlds that already exist, these immersive game worlds. But my sense is that that's a virtual place that you can go for a shared experience but you can do it from home. Almost all the experiments in doing VR, immersive VR in a theater or an arcade setting, those have not worked out very well. Uh, people haven't yeah. demonstrated that they want to go do that, uh, like leave their home and park and go put on a headset that somebody else wore 15 minutes yeah. before. Uh, Jeffrey, respond to that, if you will, this idea of storytelling and experience. I think you're absolutely right on experience, but I think for most entertainment, people want to listen to a story. To, to see a story in full. Uh, some of it is age-based, I think, uh, but I really believe traditional media techniques have lasted, you said, 125 years, and I share that. The environment has changed, and I think it's going to last a lot longer, and I still think it's the dominant form of entertainment. Now, talk about TikTok, though, in that context, because one of the reasons TikTok has been so successful is similar to one of the reasons why YouTube is so successful. YouTube succeeded because it had the easiest way to upload video to the web. That was right. the original hook. That's why it caught, you know, caught traction when 20 other competing firms didn't succeed. It was just easier to post a video on YouTube. On TikTok, it's easier to be creative. They've made it so simple to create a compelling thing. And if you're not that creative, well, then you can mimic something else. Like they, there's plenty of examples of, you know, TikTok. Templates and stuff else, yeah. 
yeah, people try to mimic that and share it. So, so I guess what I'm driving at is that there's, it seems like the new disruptors are focusing on um, self-expression and people having the experience of being storytellers, maybe a blend of the two things. Surely it's fascinating to watch. There's your storytelling. Like TikTok is incredibly addictive. It's, it's like eating Lay's potato chips. You just can't stop once you get into it. There are elements of storytelling today in terms of the plot and and so forth that are material in movie making that that make really good stories, um, and so maybe some of that is is what can protect that medium from you know this sort of individualistic approach, immersive storytelling, um, you know, from a technology perspective. But uh, it will be interesting, Jeff, to see how that plays out. But um, how can Jeff, uh, you know, we need to wrap up. It's, it's okay. time. But um, how do people find out more about what you're doing at USC? And, uh, and they you know, go to our uh, website. Everything's free. So we're not trying to sell anything at digitalcenter.org. And all kinds of our work is on there. And uh, are you on social media personally, LinkedIn? or I'm on LinkedIn. Okay, great. So we'll, uh, we can get people to follow you there. Well, it's been, it's been fantastic to have you on. It's been, uh, it, it, you know, uh, Rob obviously has real interest in this field, given his, his expertise, and it's got a great network in that respect. But um, this is, um, this has been something he's wanted to really cover off for a while now. I could tell. So it's great to have you on. So it's thank a you. lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, really fun. Thank you for joining us. And there's more to talk about. You know, there'll be more in the future. Uh, this this concept of AI that generates video, AI that generates animation. Oh yeah, that's a topic we're going to cover in a future oh, yeah. episode. And we should yeah. also get into virtual production, which is re, which is completely reinventing the way you make a motion picture. So in a future episode of the Futurists. We'll cover those topics. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I want to get into like the tech they pioneered for Mandalorian and all that sort of stuff yeah. as well, you know, yeah, and Dune. It's just like, it's just taking movie making in such an interesting direction. So, um, and you know, this is the big thing is if you can make these big blockbuster movies, but do it much more cheaply, then you, the the longevity of the movie industry extends because it's not you don't get to a point where it's no longer affordable to produce these blockbusters. So that yeah. could be interesting. Now you could have very cheap production. Anyway, we're going off on another tangent. <laughs> All right, we better wrap it up. All right, that's it for this week on The Futurist. Thanks to uh, Jeffrey Cole, our guest, and uh, and thanks to you all for uh, joining us. Um, don't forget to leave us a review. Um, we're getting really good traction with the show right now. So please, um, you know, Post, post this interview on social media, the interviews you enjoyed. Uh, tell other people about it. That's how people find out about the podcast. And, uh, you know, um, by all means, let us know who you'd like to see as a guest. My thanks go out to Elizabeth Severins and Kevin Hershen um, that uh, help us on the production side from Provoke, uh, Carla Navarra and Sylvie Johnson on the social media side and the whole team at Provoke that help us put together this show every week. That's it for the Futurist this week, but we will definitely see you again next week until then we'll see you in the future well that's it for the futurists this week if you like the show we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community and don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show and you can ping us anytime on instagram and twitter at at futurist podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.